Let's pray together. God, it is good to sing to you. It's good to reflect on the idea that you call us friend. We don't deserve that. We were once your enemies. We were at war with you. And you sent your son so that we could be called back. Father, we are so very grateful for all that you've done for us. We're thankful for the joy of worship in this space where we get to have time, just us and you, to say thank you, thank you, thank you for what you've done for us. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And it's in his name that all God's children said, Amen. You guys can have a seat. He's got a tie on. It's serious. So what if your entire life was defined by your greatest humiliation? There goes that guy. Isn't he the guy that can't keep a job? Isn't he the guy whose wife left him? Isn't he the guy who's addicted to whatever? Man, what a loser. What if your entire life was defined by your greatest humiliation? There goes that woman. Isn't she the one who marries for money? Isn't she the one whose husband slept with his secretary? Isn't she the one whose kids are always a mess? Man, what a joke. What if your whole life was defined by your greatest humiliation? Because this guy in Mark chapter 8 knows exactly how that feels. What if your whole life was defined by your greatest humiliation? So it was the week after Thanksgiving last year, and I don't know how your family does Christmas, and I don't know how you handle the big fat man, <clears throat> Santa Claus, <clears throat> but by way of quick public service announcement, uh, in case you are sitting with small children who you are actively preserving from a certain cultural myth, <clears throat> Santa Claus, you've got about 90 seconds to cover their ears uh, before I say uh, some compromising information about the man, <clears throat> Santa Claus. So here's how we do Christmas in our house. Uh, as part of our parenting, Mandy and I like to share the historical version of St. Nicholas because, yes, there really was a, a man named Nicholas, uh, St. Nicholas, and his life is actually pretty compelling. And so we try to, to weave those historical stories into our Christmas time because I am a nerd. And that's how it goes in the Marshall House. There's actually one story about uh, St. Nicholas. He was a bishop of a, of a town called Mira in northern Turkey in the 4th century. One story is that he actually saved little girls from a life of prostitution by being generous to their families. That's where the gift giving and generosity comes from. But my favorite story is in the 4th century, there was a church council where St. Nicholas attended this church council, and he loved his doctrine, and he loved especially the doctrine of Jesus. And at this church council, there was a guy that said, you know what, I don't think Jesus should be called the Son of God anymore. 
And this so incensed Nicholas, it's the best part, maybe you know this story, he got up, crossed the aisle, and punched the dude square in the face. (laughs) Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus, and he punched a guy, which I think is awesome. I say that to say, in case my kid is up there right now punching your kid in the face, it's just because he's preserving orthodoxy. It's word cool, hopefully. So it was the week after Thanksgiving last year, and uh, I went to pick up Karsten, who's uh, our middle child. At this time, he's seven. I went to pick him up from Sunday school classroom, and our kids know all the Santa stuff. We talk about it. You know, we make it very clear, and that's just how we do it. Um, and, and so they know these stories, and they know that he's a real guy. So I go to the classroom, and I see Karsten in a room full of 27-year-olds, and he's got this horrified look on his face. And he sees me. I, he, I, I step in the doorway like you do to go pick up a, your kid, and he sees me, and he runs over to me, and he's panicked. And he looks at me, he's like, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. So I kind of get down on the knee, you know, and I say, yeah, what, what's up, buddy? And he goes, Daddy, is Santa Claus real? And I said, well, well yeah. Like, it's like we've talked about, you know? Like, you know, he, he loved kids and, and he loved Jesus. He goes, yeah, 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 I know. But will I see Santa in heaven one day? And I thought, oh, how precious. And I said, so I said, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, he loved Jesus and he trusted Jesus. So he's with Jesus right now in heaven. Isn't that awesome? And as the color slowly returned to his face, my wonderful son turns around to a room full of 20 other seven-year-olds and shouts, see guys, I told you Santa was dead. (laughs) And I'm like, shut up, don't say that. Pretty humiliating point for this parent. Big backfire. We recovered, barely. That was a pretty humiliating moment for me. Mark 8 finds Jesus next to someone whose humiliation had profound social implications. But this humiliation wasn't an oops. This guy's humiliation wasn't something he could run away from, try to hide, or try to minimize. This man doesn't have a name, he doesn't have a place. He probably doesn't have any friends. All he has is a life of blindness in a small fishing village called Bethsaida. But in the span of five short verses, this guy has an encounter with the living, walking, living, breathing, sight-restoring, life-giving, grace-giving Son of God, and it changes his life forever. And so this morning, I want to take a look at this little episode, five verses, because I think it offers us a really beautiful glimpse into discipleship, namely this. Discipleship is not about what you see. Discipleship is about who you trust. So before we get into the text, let's back up a bit. Last week left us on a cliffhanger. Right? You remember those eight questions that Jesus just lobs out there to the disciples? It's a total cliffhanger. So let's, let's back up. Mark 8, and I'm just going to start at verse 17. If you don't have it, you don't, don't worry about it. I'll read it. Verse 17. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? 
Do you not, and, and do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Whenever Jesus like hits you with a barrage of questions like that, that ought to make you nervous. Okay, and then they say, he says, how many, when I broke the loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you, did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to him, do you not yet understand? And it's like a cliffhanger. He just lobs it out there, and, he, and it just kind of hangs there in the air. And it's this phenomenal tension. Keep in mind who Mark is writing to. Okay? Mark's audience, the Gospel of Mark, his audience are action-oriented Romans. These guys didn't like cliffhangers. They're not, they don't like the tension. Just give me something to do. They're seeing this bit about Jesus feeding a crowd and, and trying to steer his disciples a little bit. And they're going, okay, we get it. But what does this Jesus want us to do? They're reading this scroll or they're listening to it being read in their homes, at their tables, with their kids on their laps. And Jesus cranks up the volume with these last eight questions. And beautifully, 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 Mark just leaves it there. And the scene changes. Look at the next verse. The scene changes. No answer. What happened? Like, did we miss something? You know, like, Jesus, you forgot to turn. <laughs> Where's the answer that we thought we were going to have? And in our minds, this story loses some serious momentum. But here's, here's what this story is like. Um, I did this in the first service, and I think I freaked the sound booth out. So let's try this here. This is what this story is like. And you're like, do it already. Oh, thank you. That last note, that's verses 22 through 26. It's that resolution that that audience is craving. They're like, get there, please. This is verse 22. So join me here and look how quick the scene changes. Verse 22. And he said to them, do you not understand? And they came to Bethsaida. And you're like, wait, 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 wait. No, like, journey? No, like, not just, they came there. Oh, okay. All of a sudden, curtain up, very different background. Bethsaida is a small town, probably no more than a few thousand people. I like to think of it a little bit like Hartville, because historians said, although it has the size of a city, it's organized, and it has the feel of a small town. Peter, Andrew, and Philip lived near here. This is the place where Jesus fed 5,000 people like a month ago. The disciples would have seen Bethsaida on the shore as Jesus walked on the water on the Sea of Galilee just a little while ago. All that to say, Bethsaida was familiar territory. And Jesus would have been instantly recognized when he came into town. Because when 5,000 people follow you into a town of 3,000, that kind of thing sort of gets remembered. The name Bethsaida means house of the fishermen. And that made sense because of where it's located. It was situated where the cooler oxygenated waters of the Jordan River emptied out into the Sea of Galilee. And it made a great place for fish to hang out and therefore fishermen to hang out and to build their lives and their families and their livelihood. 
I don't think they were fly fishermen, but that's a different story altogether. We'll get there. Bethsaida was a blue-collar town of self-made men. Interestingly, of all the towns on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, Bethsaida had an opposite. It had a foil, a city called Tiberias. Blue-collar Bethsaida was way up in the northeast, and Tiberias was way down here in the southwest. Tiberias was known as a healing town. It was built on 17 mineral hot springs. It was basically the whole town was a spa. People came to Tiberias when they were sick, when they were tired, and when they needed healing. It's a white-collar town. Now, I know you didn't get out of bed this morning saying, gee, I would love a lesson in ancient geography. Maybe you did, but I don't think you did. Here's the reason I bring all that up. Statistically speaking, Bethsaida is about as far away from healing as you can get. Aren't you glad Jesus doesn't go by the stats? So as a small crowd begins to form around Jesus on his way into town, none of them would have expected to see what happens next. Take a look in verse 22 again. They came to Bethsaida. Some brought him a blind man and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of the village. Now there's a lot we don't know here. Uh, Who is this guy? Uh, Did he know the people that brought him to Jesus? Were they friends or were they complete strangers? And, And why does Jesus lead him out of town? That's a little odd. Well, we'll get into that, but I want to start with this idea of blindness. Okay, last week, this first half of Mark 8, Ryan basically summarized to say that Jesus is talking about discipleship. And the first big chunk that we have to get when it comes to following Jesus is to accept the fact that we are all spiritually blind. We need spiritual illumination. The lights are off up here, and we need the lights on. We have a deep need for Jesus. That's the first half of Mark 8, and the disciples didn't get it. And so they're like, okay, whatever, Jesus. Now what do we do? And up comes this guy, led by a group of people. And whatever small talk you've been having as a disciple, and we know they had quite a bit of small talk, stops because there's a situation right in front of your face and it's making you a little uncomfortable. The man is nameless and that's probably a metaphor for how we should understand his life. His life is marked by a passive but very pervasive and constant humiliation. When people pass by him, he, they, they, they pretend he's not there, but he can tell. They try to keep their comments to themselves, but he can hear them. Maybe every once in a while someone throws him some bread, but it's never enough. He's an outcast. He is bothersome. He is an eyesore. Statistically speaking, this guy is as far away from healing as you can get. But aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't go by the stats? The guy is the bane of his culture, the embarrassment to his city. So the real question is, who is it? It's not who are these people, but why are they bothering to bring this guy to Jesus in the first place? We might be tempted to say, oh, yeah, because they're his friends. But I don't think that's it. 
Keep in mind where they are. Bethsaida is a very Jewish town and a very Jewish culture. And so these guys are looking for Messiah everywhere. One day, God's going to bring his promised one. And one day, it's going to be great. And so they're looking for all these little signs. They know the prophecies. They know the signs. They know what to look for when Messiah comes. One of those prophecies, Isaiah 35, gives us a clue for what Messiah's coming will look like. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to me read this. Isaiah 35. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and he will save you. Now, hang on. This is where it gets awesome. Then, when Messiah comes, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Like, I've got to admit, everywhere Jesus went, Isaiah 35 is going off like fireworks in people's mind, going, oh my gosh, did you see what he just did? Could this be the guy? But the sad thing is, for most people, by the time that Jesus came, their expectations have soured and turned into a Messiah who is more of a political figure who will restore them to their rightful place in the sun. Side note, God is interested in politics, just not in a way that most people think. You can almost hear the dialogue, can't you? Here comes that Jesus guy. Yeah, he's the one that did that trick with like the fish and the loaves. Isn't that the guy? Yeah, I think that's him. Hey, hey, go get that blind dude. We'll trot him out here and see if this, if this guy's Messiah. And I love what Jesus does. He leads the man out of town. It's like he's saying, nope, I'm done playing that game. Don't expect me to dance just because you played the fife. Don't think I'm going to humor you because you flatter me. That's not repentance. That's a magic show. And I'm not into that. I've come to call you to repentance and invite you to experience what you really need, not what you think you want. Discipleship isn't about what you can see. It's about who you trust, and there's a profound difference. So he leads the man out of town. And when he had spit on his eyes, he laid his hands on him, and he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up, and he said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he restored his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. In those tender, intimate, transformative few moments, Jesus unfolds three principles for what true restoration looks like. So let's start with the spit, because that's gross. Here's the first principle. When Jesus restores you, it is a personal restoration. It's a personal restoration. According to the Old Testament law, spit was unclean. And that's not really that hard to imagine, right? Because whether it's a big wet kiss from your Aunt Ethel at Thanksgiving, or somebody actually spitting on you, spit is kind of gross stuff. Right? So when you spit on somebody, it makes them unclean. And so what's Jesus doing here? Is he just making things worse for the guy? 
The guy's already unclean. He's already a social outcast. Is Jesus just exacerbating the problem and saying, look at this guy literally spitting in his face? I don't think that's what he's doing. Here's why. Yes, spit was gross. Yes, it made someone unclean. But there's a tradition in first century Israel and in Bethsaida, now get this, that the spit of the firstborn son of a father has healing properties. Let that sink in for a minute. What's Jesus doing here? He's not just looking for something wet. He's making a theological statement. He's saying, I am the firstborn son of my father. I and the father are one. And I'm not just here to to take care of your blindness, to heal you. I'm here to save you. I made you with dust and I can heal you with spit because I am the firstborn son of God. So as soon as this man heard Jesus spit on his hand, he knew he's either a deranged madman or he is the son of God. And as the first blurry shades of light fell into his newly opened eyes, although he wasn't completely there yet, this guy knew discipleship isn't about what I see. It's not a what. It's a who. And it's this guy. And I am all yours, Jesus. You get how personal that feels? No one meets Jesus in a group. There may be people around you when you meet Jesus for the first time or when you come to faith, but no one meets Jesus in a group. Your faith can't be your mom's, your dad's, or your Aunt Ethel's. It can't be sort of a faith. It has to be yours. Each one of us needs an experience like this guy where we come face-to-face, one-on-one with Jesus and say, who are you? Who do you claim to be? What have you done? And what am I going to do with it? That's the first principle. When Jesus restores you, it's a personal restoration. So that's the deal with the spit. Don't try it at home because you're not God. Second principle. Because he does it twice. Isn't Isn't that weird? Here's the second principle. When Jesus restores you, it's a relational restoration. It's a personal restoration, and it's also a relational restoration. At first glimpse, it looks like Jesus kind of messes up, doesn't it? You're like, twice? What's, what's with that, Jesus? Come on. Couldn't you just, like, like, snap your fingers and have it done? Like, he's doing that everywhere else in the Gospels. Like, some places he just says a word, and boom, a guy's healed, and boom, this guy's raised from the dead. Like, wh- why can't Jesus do it that way? What's with the twofold thing here, Jesus? Why do you have to do it twice? Jesus doesn't ask the question, can you see everything or anything? He doesn't ask because he doesn't know the answer, right? That's not the reason Jesus asks. He knows the answer. He's God. I think he knew. He asks a question because he's inviting this man deeper into a relationship with him. Just so we're clear, this isn't somehow about, you know, God helps those who help themselves, That's a horribly unbiblical idea. The only thing that I contributed to my salvation was the sin that made it necessary. It's all Jesus. But discipleship isn't about a transaction, is it? It's not like I give Jesus 20 bucks and he gives me heaven. 
It's not a transaction. It's, from the get-go, it's always about a relationship. This, this, this restoration that Jesus wants to bring into this guy's life isn't like a one-and-done thing. This is like a very long, huge, big view of how he wants to restore this man. He asks the man the question because he wants to make sure he doesn't fall into the same trap that everybody else around him did, namely this, that Jesus is more interested in fixing your problem than he is leading your life. Don't fall into that trap. I know a lot of half-sighted Christians, because I used to be one, and we're content with one touch from Jesus. It could be this thing you did at a church camp a long time ago, an aisle you walked when someone played softly and tenderly. It could be a prayer you prayed once or a phone number you called, and then we're done. Got it. Transaction. Hell canceled, heaven guaranteed. Me and Jesus were good. Those experiences and those memories are okay, but they are not it. This, it they're, they're beginning of the it. The it is a long-term view. In a world full of one-night stands, empty transactional relationships, and fleeting friendships, Jesus is not about one and done. Think of the audacity there. He says, I want your life. Nobody else says that. But that's why we sing, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my, my soul. Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. Hallelujah, which means God be praised. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. That's our life. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. That's why we sing that song is because our restoration is relational. In his compassion and wisdom, God loves you enough to cut through the meaningless static of your life. Oil changes and Black Friday sales and expense reports and school lunches and family problems and football problems and blah, blah, blah. Cut through all of that and say, I love you and I want to know you and I want you to know me. That is a profoundly audacious thing for God to say. That's the second principle. When Jesus restores you, it's a relational restoration. Third principle. When Jesus restores you, it is a missional restoration. It's a missional restoration. What's with that little bit on the end? That always struck me a little odd, right? Where Jesus is like, hey, I'm going to restore your sight. Okay, can you see anything? No. Okay, how about now? Okay, no. Okay, no. Do you notice that? He says, go straight to your house. Don't even go into the town. Don't. Why does he do that? What's with the messianic prohibition? Like, I thought this would be good news, right, Jesus? Like, you just heal the guy. Certainly other people could benefit by hearing this. Think about the guy, too. That would have been a little awkward, right? Like, what happens? You go home, open the door, first time in forever, go over to the refrigerator, get yourself some milk, get some cereal, and make yourself a bowl, sit there at the table, and, like, nothing happened. And your family's like, dude, you can see. And you're like, yeah. Mmm, about that. I can't It would have been incredibly awkward for this guy. So what's Jesus doing here? Is he, is he trying to keep him on 
No, not really. He's not trying to exclude anybody. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus is trying to clarify the intention underneath everybody's eventual inquisition. Because sooner or later, the truth's going to come out. And when this guy does open his mouth and the truth eventually does come out, the conversation's not going to be about him, but about the man who made him see. You see the difference? Because if you're a Christian in this room, your life is not oriented around a what? Like a series of facts. Your life is oriented around a who? A person. That's pretty big. Because the gospel is not something we present like a PowerPoint presentation. It's not like, here's what this is. You present it. Mm-mm. The gospel is an introduction to make. <laughs> when I read the New Testament, that's what I see. There are presentative elements to it, maybe, but it is always an introduction to make. So let's stop for a second. When we talk about our lives, how do you talk about the good things that happen to you? Do you say like, well... Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's a good job, and I work really hard, so I'm, 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 I'm thankful to have it. It's a good job. I'm, I'm really thankful because I'm working, you know. And, you know, I used to be angry. I used to be a really bitter person. I used to have a lot of anxiety, but I'm working hard on that. I, I am working hard on that. Could it be that one of our biggest missed opportunities is to share our lives through the lens of the gospel? And it's a subtle tweak, but it makes a big difference. Sounds like this. I used to be all about stuff. I used to hoard my stuff and be so protective and uh, used to be so angry and so anxious. But I'm a Christian, and Jesus is working on me in some really deep and powerful ways. And he's the Lord of my life. And and so according to him, I got to do my life different. See how different that feels? Or like, man, I I love how God is, is... is eroding the anger in my heart because I'm a Christian and I'm trusting him with it and, and he's doing some amazing things about it. Could I tell you about it? Do you see the difference between those two ideas? The gospel in our life is not something we present. It's an invitation we extend. When Jesus restores you, it is a missional restoration. Here's something to think about. This whole scenario lasts about 10 minutes like best as I can kind of tell from start to finish. Most of the scenario is Jesus walking with the guy down the road out of town. What do you think they talked about? I wonder that. The disciples would have seen the whole thing, right? They would have seen the whole thing play out right before their eyes, this whole scene. They would have heard the whole conversation. And after this, look at the next verse. After this, they just get up and leave town again. He sent them home, saying, don't even enter the village. And then verse 27, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And you're like, that's it? Like five little verses. Like the whole reason he came there is like, boom, show up, heal a guy, ask a couple questions, boom, leave town. The disciples are like, "Eh, what's happening here? I think Jesus is making a point, and it's this. What I've just done for this guy physically is what everyone needs spiritually. Because Peter, James, Andrew, John, I love you guys, but the thing about you is you're missing it. Everybody in your life, everybody that I created, you are all spiritually blind, and I've come to give you sight. 
Is it humiliating to admit that you need Jesus? I think so, for what it's worth. My opinion. But aren't you glad we serve a king who takes our humiliations and turns them into restorations? I am. So let me get practical for a second. There are three types of people in this room. One, you are blind and you know it. You're blind and, like, you're happy and you know it only, like, the other way. You're blind and you know it. This is the best case scenario for what it's worth. It's, it's the blind man here. And these are people who say, God, I have made a mess of my life. My marriage is a train wreck. My kids are out of control. My life is in shambles. All my relationships are really all about me, but I keep so much inside and nobody knows me. And if they really knew me, they'd hate me. And so I keep it all in and oh, my life is a mess and I am done. That's who this guy is. And I imagine if we could eavesdrop in on that conversation he has with Jesus, it might sound something like that. Jesus, I hate this town. These people, they hate me. I live my life shriveled up, just a shell of a person. I hate what my life has become, and I want out. Jesus, I am done. There's probably quite a few of us who have been in that place, or maybe you are in that place, and if that's you, Jesus' role wants to be like a life preserver for you, giving you hope when and where you most need it. Congratulations, you're in the best place possible. It doesn't feel that way, but you are because you are among an honest community of Christ followers because nobody gets it right. We've all messed up. But I've got to acknowledge something that is true of church, and I mean, even our church, it's true any, of any church you're ever going to go to. It is possible to remain completely anonymous while screaming inside. And if you feel that, or if you've ever felt that, my word for you is this. May God give you the courage to refuse to stay anonymous. Call someone. Let them in. That's the hardest step to make. And it's so easier for me just to say it from up here. Call someone. Let them in. Call me. Call a friend. Call someone you know and say, look, I just got to talk. I got to get this off my chest. I got to invite you in because I am so tired and I need Jesus. It doesn't matter how you get to Jesus. Remember that. People can carry you on a mat according to the Gospels. You can come running. He could find you at a well. It doesn't matter how you get to Jesus. What matters is what you do when you get there. That's the first group. You're blind and you know it. But there's a second group. You're half-sighted and you're sort of okay with it. This is the disciples here. They kind of get it. Kind of get it, but not really. This person sounds like this. You know, I'm not as bad as I used to be. And, or worse, they say this. They say, I'm not as bad as that guy. But inside, they're hollow. They know it. This is my story, for what it's worth. 
Growing up, I had a wonderful childhood. I was saved when I was seven. I didn't get into much trouble. I was a really good kid, and that was part of the problem. I had a wonderful house with wonderful mom and dad who loved me and supported me and still do, but I couldn't shake the feeling that I was coloring in black and white, and Jesus had the 64-count box of Crayola crayons over here that he wanted me to play with. And I'm going, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm really okay. I just I, Don't lean into me. I'm really comfortable, and I don't want you to kind of push me off my fence. I'm all right. Life's good. What, 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 what more? I mean, I can see. They're like trees walking around, but I can see. I can get by. Here's the deal. Jesus doesn't want you to get by. Jesus gave us life so that we would use it. And it wouldn't be this colorless, vapid, boring life, right? John 10, 10. He came that we might have life, and we might have it, what? More abundantly. Don't stay half-sided. So three reasons why you might want to stay half-sided, right? Why you might be stuck. And incidentally, I see myself in all three of these, okay? By the grace of God, they're fading out. But here's the first one. You might want to stay stuck because you don't want to inconvenience Jesus. And I know that sounds weird. and like, really? You don't want to inconvenience Jesus and you say, like, this is enough. I'm good. I mean, Jesus, you've done so much for me. Like, you, you canceled hell and you guaranteed heaven. I'm okay, really. I can get by. I can see. Not great, but I can see. It's good enough. We don't serve a good enough God. <laughs> he doesn't do that. Like, he's not, let me give you just boop, that much. Second reason my, why you might be stuck in half-sighted land is you might be embarrassed to admit that you need more Jesus. Which sounds a little odd again, too, but it's a humbling thing to admit. You know, I've been following Jesus for decades, but I'm not growing. I'm not doing anything risky. I'm not, I'm, I'm not reading, I'm not praying, I'm not really in community, I'm kind of on my own and I'm good. For me, I'll just let you into my heart, what happened for me is I had to get to a point where my desire to grow in Christ outweighed my ability or my desire to save face. And I had to go, you know what, I'm actually clueless about this whole thing and I gotta back up and start over. Third reason why you might want to stay half-sided or why you might feel like you're stuck is you're afraid of the implications of seeing clearly. Because it's true, if Jesus restores your sight, that means something. And that's scary. We can admit that. If you turn your whole life over to Jesus and you say, here's my marriage, here's my kids, here's my house, here's my wallet, here's my, here, take it, everything. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to you. Here you go. That's going to have implications. And you know that. And so we're going, mm, I'm, I'm good. I'm half-sighted, but I'm okay. And if that's you, let me just say, there is no one more trustworthy. There is no one who loves you more. And I'm talking about the real you, like the deep down you. There is no one that wants to unleash your sonship or your daughtership as an adopted child of God more than the one who made you. He is trustworthy with your heart because he made you. He wants to do big things through you. 
And I don't mean big things like you're going to read about in a newspaper or a book. I mean big, faithful things. But you can't do it if you're half-sighted. Third group. And this is the most tragic. Blind, but your pride won't let you believe it. This is the most tragic. And this is the Pharisees here. Maybe the people that brought the guy to Jesus. They're blind, but their pride won't let them, to, let them believe it. And so they come to Jesus with an agenda. And they say, prove it. Prove it, Jesus. Prove that you're the Messiah, and, and, then, and then we'll believe. They don't go, oh, Lord, I've made a mess. Lord, oh. They don't say that. They go, Lord, 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 Lord. Heal that guy. We're going to stand back and watch. And Jesus has no tolerance for that. And that's really tough. These are the people that say things like, forgiveness? Why would I ask them for forgiveness? I'm right. They keep people at arm's length rather than hear the truth about themselves. They want to know that they're right more than they want to know who they are. And incidentally, these people look great. They are the model Christians, and you know who they are. Nobody's life is that perfect. But these Pharisees, ooh, they got it. But this is a horrifying thought because their titanic life is heading for an iceberg and they have no idea until it's too late. Because later in the book of Matthew, when Jesus is thinking back on all the cities that he visited, do you know what he says to Bethsaida? He says, woe to you, Bethsaida, which isn't like, woe. It's like, I'm pulling my hair out and as I'm grieving, I'm going, no, no, Bethsaida, he says, if the miracles that I did in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, these other cities, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. But you, I was there, and you missed the whole thing. Woe to you. And I believe that Jesus grieves over Bethsaida. Because they saw everything, but right? Discipleship isn't about what you see. It's about who you trust, and they couldn't get there. Jesus' role in, 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 in this kind of life is like a pickaxe, chipping away the hardness of a heart until it slowly warms up to the things of Christ. And if that doesn't sound like great news, I guess I get it. But here's, it's the best news because it means that the ice is beginning to crack and Jesus is starting to do something in your life. Here's the thing, if that's you or if you know people that are like that, you are in a room full of people who get it. Because part of what it means to be a Christian is to say, I screwed up and I need help. My life is a mess. Jesus, would you come in? Would you steer my life? And incidentally, everybody else can already see it anyway. So it's okay. Let your belly out. In closing, and the worship team's gonna come back up um, in a second. And we're gonna sing, we're gonna sing a song called Amazing Grace, which is a good one when you're thinking about spiritual blindness. Um, I've just got one thing, just, just one thing. And, and a lot of times when we close you know, a message or a sermon, you know, there's like three or four points of application. I've just got one. Take one step closer to Jesus. And you could be walking with him for 80 years. Take one step closer to Jesus. I'm gonna trust you to figure out what that means. That could be like, this is the first time you've ever heard that God wants to have a relationship with you. That even though we are sinners, 
that God took the initiative and said, I'm going to send my son to pay the price for their sins on a cross so I could have them back to restore them to the place that I want them. And if that's the first time you've ever heard that or the first time it's really clicked, take one step closer to Jesus today. So that could be picking up the phone and calling somebody and having a real conversation going, you know what? I, I, it could be taking some prayer time. It could be coming up at these altars at the end of our service. And by the way, if you do that, no one's going to laugh at you. And if they do, shame on them. Because if you've got business to do with God, get up here. My point is get one step closer to Jesus today. Here's the deal. In a room like this, I'd bet we've all got some humiliations over our shoulder. Some of them are things we've caused. Some of them are things that we didn't cause. And my word to you is that we serve a king and we worship a king who changes humiliations into restorations because discipleship is not about what you can see. It's about who you trust. Let me pray. God, your grace is amazing and you're very good to us. I think about this man who met you and I believe he's with you right now. And we are down here looking forward to the day when we get to see you face to face. I thank you for the grace that you've preserved everybody in this room. We have life, we have breath. Any moment you could say, give it back, and you would be justified in doing so. But you have a life that you want us to live for your glory, for your pleasure, not for our agenda. And so we give that up to you. We say, would you take our lives? Your grace is amazing that you've shown us. And so the life that we now live, we are going to live in light of the cross. Father, we're so very grateful. All God's people said, amen.